Hello, Chini Amaji family. We would like to hear from you. One of the questions we've been asking ourselves is how we can make this podcast better. So to that end, we've created a five to six question survey. Uh, and you can find that on our website at impactafrica.network backslash Chini Amaji. The questions that we, you know, that what we want to learn is, you know, what you what you enjoy about this podcast, what you don't like about it, how we can improve it, who else we should, uh, what are the topics we should cover, and what are the guests we should have on the podcast. So if you'd be kind enough just to go to impactafrica.network backslash Chini and complete that survey, that would be great. The link to that questionnaire will also be on the podcast bio wherever you're listening to the podcast from. Enjoy. Cool. Hello, everybody. This is the Chini Amaji podcast with Impact Africa Network. My name is Mark Karaki, and today I am super excited to have uh, another amazing guest in our series. And uh, Kane Manjao is CTO at Twigger Foods and just an amazing ecosystem personality, somebody who I uh, consider a friend, somebody who I uh, have known for probably over a year now and yeah. some, some change. But yeah, Kane's background is fascinating. Um, he's an entrepreneur, technologist, and basically all-around ecosystem good guy, I would say, right? Um, everybody who knows Kane uh, has good things to say, and it's not just because he's a good guy, but he's also very accomplished in, in terms of uh, his career, his profession, and uh, what he does. He's one of the guys, I would say, is an A player um, in our ecosystem. And so just to kind of reiterate a little bit of your background, You've doubled in robotics, you lived in Japan, Australia, you ran a consulting firm, um, and also launched a display advertising uh, technology that uh, um, was actually put out into the market, which is very impressive. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, we're excited to have you because you have a lot to share for, with the ecosystem. So mm-hmm. why don't we just start with you know, introducing yourself and uh, telling the world who you are. Yeah, so thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, equally as excited to, to be here to share my thoughts, views uh, on the general tech scene and the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely I've been, I've been looking forward to this for, for a while. So yeah, thanks, thanks to you and the team for, for bringing me on. Uh, yeah, but by, by way of background, uh, I have very many varied interests. Um, I, I mean, born and raised in Nairobi, grew up here, did primary and high school here, and then as I was finishing high school, I, I kind of started thinking, okay, what do I want to do career-wise? Because at that point, I hadn't really settled on, on something. Right. So, and high school? Which high school did you go to? So my primary and high school, I spent 12 years at St. Mary's, so I did 12 years in the same school. So you're one of the saints core. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But in many ways, I, I liked the consistency it gave me, right. um, in the sense that I spent 12 years in one place, got to build a solid, solid foundation there. And so even as I was thinking of the next thing, I, was, I, I only had this thing, think long term. Don't think, okay, what am I going to do for two years, three years, four years? I'm like, okay, how do I look at this for the next five, ten years? Because wow. I'd spent 12 years at the same place, mm-hmm. and i kind of evolved and grown in that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. So my default setting has always been think, think long term. So do you think having been at one school in one environment yeah. put that framework in your mind or is there something else that contributed to that way of thinking? Because that's an unusual yeah. way of thinking for a young person. Yeah, I think, I think I'd say largely the fact that I, I mean, you're right, the fact that I'd stayed there for that long kind of made me think, okay, I've been here for so long, 
Uh, I feel things have gone as I had planned. Mm-hmm. I've seen myself grow, evolve as a person. So as I'm thinking of it, it's thinking around how do I set myself for my next phase of life? And I think of it in terms of one, two, three years, which, which, is, not, which is not a bad thing. It's just a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just felt that structure worked well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was, I, was, I was thinking at that time, okay, what do I want to do with my career? How do I want to uh, how do I want to take my next step in next step in life? So, the thing that really interested me was uh, computers uh, and more so hardware. Mm. Um, I mean, I think at that time a lot of people focused on software, and I think that's the time I think I I'd say the IT scene was really really taking off. But it's it's nothing compared to the ecosystem or the startups that we have nowadays. But people are starting to understand the power and the usefulness of technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was in very simple ways. For example, for the longest, um, my report card at the end of term, teacher used to go and write it right. out by hand. And you take it home. Comments, you take it home. <laughs> Burning all in your pocket <laughs> or your, your backpack. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was how things were. Then at some point, they switched to um, an automated system. Oh, wow. So okay. you do exams, your teachers would feed it in. Mm. And then that's printed out. So all that would be remaining is for the teachers to write mm. the comments mm. against your grade. Mm. But the whole thing was automated. So, I mean, people saw that uh, the teachers liked it. It saved them a lot of time because mm. a lot of it was essentially clerical work. So right. the fact that the technology could do that for them, yeah. people started to say, okay, this, this thing looks like it would be good. And it was starting to touch various sectors of the economy. Mm-hmm. So education was one. Um, of course, at the time, I think uh, Safaricom, and I think then it was called um, Cancel. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the two big players. So people started to understand okay, maybe mobile technology will be a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we hadn't really realized the impact it would have. Mm-hmm. But people said, I think the seeds had been planted in people's minds that like technology is going to be a big thing. Right. So they were seeing it actually manifest. Yeah, they were seeing it manifest in various ways. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, I think, I think technology is where I want to be, but let me try focus on, on hardware. Okay. So when I did my research, I kind of figured out um, at that time, Japan is where a lot of the cool things to do with hardware and robotics were, were kind of happening. At the time. So right Japan, now it's very different, obviously. China seems to be leading, or do you have a view? Right, I mean, right now, it's, I think given the proliferation of even cheap hardware devices, so like Raspberry Pis, IoT sensors and everything, it's manifesting itself anywhere. So the good thing is it's very democratized in a sense. Uh, I think the person with the best idea has very cheap access to hardware Mm -hmm. and the ability to make something useful out of it. Now, granted they're still made in China, Mm -hmm. but the ability to think through design, iterate and build something has really, really changed over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And is that because of software tools or what's the reason for that? I I think three things. One, the cost of hardware has come really, really uh, down. Um, I mean, those days, even a, even a laptop, you would think of spending 300000 which is $3,000. Wow, yeah. um, mm-hmm. um, now you can get a very decent, okay laptop for $700 or so. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think when, I, when I think through the changes in terms of cost of hardware, that's really made access much, much easier. Mm-hmm. The second one, of course, is software and access to information. Right. Uh, the improvement in connectivity, having information easily available. Someone can figure this out by themselves. They can quickly figure out the prototyping. Exactly. Things out. Yeah. I mean, those days even to, to learn, I remember in high school, for me to like really learn computers properly, mm-hmm. yes, I would have the laptop and do the theory, but then I would have to go get a book from the library mm-hmm. and read through 
what software does. Wow. <laughs> I mean, Google was just starting up. Uh, right. it, was a, it was a good resource then. Uh, but of course, they were still in the process of indexing um, the, the internet. So you didn't have all the information, or certainly not the amount of information you have yeah, now. Today, yeah. uh, the likes of Stack Overflow, where people go to for resources, for right. example, right. didn't GitHub, exist. Things like that. Blogs was just a concept at that right. point in right. time. Yeah. So all the tools that people have available to them now were not really there at that time. Yeah. So people would have to go in, like, to the library and look for the book. So, so information was just non-existent in a sense, or exactly. very difficult to come by in a useful format. That you I wouldn't say difficult, I'd say you really have to be resourceful to okay. get the right information. Right. Um, the good thing, Amazon was established then, of course, we, we still had the challenge with credit cards here. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think many people had them there, so to thinking, okay, how do I get uh, the material I need here? But nowadays, of course, uh, the whole game has changed. There's mm -hmm. so much information there, and mm -hmm. then the third thing which I think has really helped is optimization of global supply chain. So mm -hmm. I can easily order something online. Uh, it can come from as far as China, where mm -hmm. hardware mm -hmm. is in plentiful and at a reasonable cost, mm -hmm. and ship them here and have them in a, in a few days. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, now we have uh, the likes of Nerocas, um, um, so which is a popular site for hardware enthusiasts. Mm. What's it called again? Uh, Narrowcast. Narrowcast. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. can go there, mm. buy any kind of chip or mm. hardware you need, and mm. then start start playing around with, mm. uh, with with devices and sensors. So I think the landscape had changed. But for context, at that time you really had to go where the action was. You mm. had to go see it, understand it. Um, YouTube only came in 2005, so yeah. you yeah. didn't have that much of a resource. Even if you had to go and try watch it online that information was not that easily available. So, for that reason, I decided to go to Japan, just to kind of try and understand the hardware robotics space. Mm -hmm. I stayed there for one year, mm -hmm. and then continued my studies um, in Australia for four years. So in Australia, I actually combined hardware and software. And the reason I did that was because I knew eventually I want to get into the hardware space. And then I was like, Look, if, if I get to the end of my studies and let's say I decide to come back to Kenya, which I did, and mm -hmm. the market is not ready for that, mm -hmm. I just need to be flexible enough to understand what mm -hmm. opportunities are there at mm -hmm. that point in time. So I kind of split it and said, okay, my course will be one that focuses 50% on hardware and then focuses 50% on, on software. Mm -hmm. So my, my degree was a combination of, wow. of those two That's things. That's an unusual degree. What, 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 why, how uh, was that even possible? So luckily, the university I went to um, let you. One, had a, one, one of the things I chose is that I have a very wide range of courses. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, you could mix and match. So depending on the credits you took, they'll tell you this credit is eligible for these eight mm -hmm. degrees. Mm -hmm. So I'll take a course that be eligible for electrical, uh, mechanical, uh, electromechanical, uh, general engineering. Then you take another course that will apply for mechanical and civil engineering. So they are very flexible in how they thought about what units would constitute what made your degree, because yeah. we're looking at it in terms of credit points. Yeah. So they gave you that flexibility from early on. So as soon as you got to your third year, uh, your last two years were essentially, are you saying this is where I really want to focus on, this is my area of speciality. Um, most universities tend to be Yes, more rigid. Yeah, straight jacket. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, and, and you know, even if you look so at the helped. way the way the world is setting itself up right mm. now along the education space, yeah. right? I mean, you were kind of describing what you're mm. describing right now mm. is a scenario where 
you know, instructional courses, mm. are, in a sense, they were gearing them to, they were allowing that flexibility yeah. with a view to allowing you to be able to, in a sense, de- graduate, but define mm. what skill sets you wanted to actually uh, attain so that when you, you became market ready, in a yeah. sense, it was almost a market readiness kind of uh, Flexibility. It allows for some to say, okay, I want to do this because I see I can do this in the world, right? It applies directly to. Yeah, and I, and I think for me, the seeds were planted when I, was, when I was actually in high school. So we got quite a bit of flexibility around what we could do because mm-hmm. your uh, at least exam system then, I'm not sure it is now, you'd have to do eight subjects, and I think five core ones. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. remember, there was math, English, Swahili. And two sciences; mm. those are compulsory. Beyond that, uh, just for the school to decide. Yeah. Now, some schools are very strict and said, "These are the resources we have, so these are the less, these are the subjects you have to study." Mm. Ours are a bit more flexible. So, outside the five mandatory ones, you could either choose another science uh, or choose religious studies. Um, I chose computer studies. Uh, I chose commerce. Um, I also chose history. So. I think from a very young age, I, I, I had that mindset saying, if I can choose and see what makes sense for me, it would help set me up for what I want to do next in my, in my career. So, so to, to some extent, I was, I was also thinking, okay, when I finish, do I want to say I'm very specialized in one thing, or do I want to have a bit more flexibility? Mm. And, and I went for the latter. So, so when, I, when I came back, actually, my, my thinking then was actually proven to be the case, because those, I think that time um, when I came back, which was the end of 2010, the, the, the startup scene was just kind of starting to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, so prior to the iHubs uh, and the working spaces, the co-working spaces that we have today, uh, people were doing a lot of the discussions on, um, on email, email threads wow. and, and group chats, mm-hmm. um, which was good because mm-hmm. it kind of got people talking, this is mm-hmm. what we need to do in the ecosystem. Kind of knowing who, who else is in the, is in the space, yeah, yeah networking. Mm-hmm. So, this interestingly, this started on uh, email threads. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, co working spaces came. A lot of these conversations have now moved to uh, meetups or WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of the conversations This happened. is interesting. I mean, so, let's track a little bit of the yeah. history of how the ecosystem has evolved and yeah. the effect it has had. Because, yeah. you know, you, you guys were first of the first batch, I would say, mm-hmm. of emerging technologists or mm. innovators or mm. entrepreneurs. Mm. And so you're saying it started online through threads, email threads yeah. and chat rooms. Yeah. And then the spaces came about the iHubs and the Nylabs. Yes. Right? And mm. and then and then they've obviously something has obviously maybe changed in a sense. Can you track for us maybe what have been the changes between the early days and right now in terms of how people organize and the impacts mm. of those? So so I think the, the way it's evolved, in my view, was it's just a consequence of how people have come to relate to the, to the ecosystem. Um, pre, pre-2010, pre-2011, I think a lot of people would spend time in cyber cafes. Um, a lot of the, I mean, even if you have some of the people who founded companies here, they started by working out of uh, cyber cafes. And, you know, the thing is, it was a very, it's very interesting because I came to realize that cyber cafes had, ve- had a very interesting business model. Mm. They'll charge you by the minute, wow. but mm. the, their main cost was the amount of data 
bandwidth, yeah. Uh, that someone used. Right. Yeah. Right. So imagine you want to send an email. A very simple task. Because right. that's how that's I what mean this was free <laughs> this was the beginning of social media, so people right. are generally on emails that day right. and these email threads and chat rooms. You may spend twenty minutes writing an email. Yeah. But sending it will only cost you a few megabytes at most. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll be charged for the time. Uh, aspect not, of not it, the yeah. But the, the reality is, it was very affordable. Mm. People found it as a good way to go and kind of get plugged in into the internet and understand what's happening. Um, so it got to a point where I think people, people kind of then said, okay, what, what next? So um, the crew around um, that space was like, okay, let's let's think of a co-working space. Um, so I have I have was founded as a co-working space, and I think it unlocked another second level of access. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are like, okay, we actually don't have to go to cyber cafes. Let's let's go and find like-minded people. Because mm-hmm. you know the thing about a cyber cafe is, I'm going there, yes, but people are there for different things. Right. One is right. really there there's no for, community. Feel. There's no community feel around it exactly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people are like, okay, let's let's go to iHub as it was then. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a free time. So people as long a as free one? a free tire. So they had okay, a free plan. So, so there was a, it was a community space. A community know. space. Then you could pay for a dedicated space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very very interesting and cool model. Mm-hmm. At least you, you you had the sense you're going there and you'll probably find like like minded right, people. Right. Yeah. Right. One thing that goes unsaid, I think, um, and should be emphasized more is a lot of the um, companies you see today were. Discussions or even the people meeting happened at IHAM. Right. Um, a lot of right. companies are founded by people meeting there. So it was a primordial and, soup of what we see today. Exactly, and so and as much as it has evolved and people have varied opinions about it, I, I personally saw a lot of those companies, um, friendships, even right. marriages. <laughs> <laughs> people people met at IHAM, and uh, so, <laughs> so so I, I think it played a, I, I think it played a very very important. It's, Yes, parting, catalyzing what we have today. This is an important point because Mm -hmm. if you look at Mm -hmm. and how much of the free tier Mm -hmm. facilitated that or made that possible, I think I would say that's really a lot of people came for the free tier uh, service. If it was paid, I don't think it would have had what you had today. Um, Now, of course. You have to build a sustainable business. That's true. But I think I think when it was being founded, the team behind it was like, okay, let's 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 bring us let's let's create a space where people can come and actually um, get to know each other. Uh, let's understand what are the issues in the ecosystem. Um, I think they 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 they, they had this thing where they're like, okay, with with time, we feel we can have metrics or something useful to say about the, the ecosystem. Right. Um, and these have a lot of events. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyone who wanted to meet anyone with a startup idea would come to IHAP. Mm. Um, it was, uh, I mean, I think those days it was a tourist stop of sorts. So <laughs> <laughs> if you don't understand the IHAP, the startup scene, you'll be told, okay, go, go to, go, go to, to IHAP. Yeah. So, so this was, yeah, 2011, 2012, I think that's when really, it really, really, um, I mean, served its primary, primary purpose. purpose. Yeah. Uh, I think the good thing also is the companies that felt they were, big enough or had gotten some traction, left it to other people to come. So it wasn't just a matter of coming and staying, the same there, yeah, yeah, staying yeah. there forever. So it was a pass-through situation. So at the time, even the, the, the people who went there changed. So I remember going there after not being there for a very long time and I could hardly recognize any faces. But for me, it was validation yeah, that's in good. the sense that, yeah. okay, I've come here, was able to make connections, uh, meet you people with yeah. mutual interests. Yeah. 
uh, I moved on. Then other people came and made use of the space. So let's let's so, switch back to kind of like now yeah. how you made use of the space because this is a very interesting story. Yeah, you inter- you you started to kind of hone your entrepreneurial chops there. What were some yeah. of the first projects you worked on? What how what was that about? Yeah, so so coming after coming back, I I had a few options um, and I decided to take the plunge and be an entrepreneur. Uh, at the same time, I enrolled for my masters mm-hmm. at Strathmore University. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I always came knowing I want to take a crack at it. One one thing that's always I, I think understated uh, in my view is you wanna you wanna do these things when you're young mm-hmm. and you don't have too many commitments or obligations because mm-hmm. if you fail you can always recover recover mm-hmm. or you, you, you the only other way of doing this is you have something very successful you have a plan you're a fallback plan so you go back into the entrepreneurial space. I mean, when you're at a point where maybe you're just settling down or you have a young family, it's very, very difficult mm. to even think about taking, mm. taking a risk. So I was like, if I'm going to do it, let me do it now. So I decided to get into, uh, I decided to do two things. So one was start um, co-found a company that does digital um, transit advertising and then also do an IT consultancy. It wasn't more to hedge my best, just like, I want to try two things and see, and see how it would go. Mm. So... I think from from that perspective, I, I I managed to make the right connections there. I met people who actually I met my co-founder for at Flashcast um, at iHub. So I managed to make good connections. Uh, I got good networks. I got good leads. Um, and the good thing those days is if if someone came and said, look, I need someone who does A B C D, they would easily find someone else they know from iHub. Because to say I'm validating, okay, I know this person. They can do their work. Uh, I can vouch for them. Which was, which is even today is very hard. Like unless you know someone personally, you not recommend uh, someone to someone you don't know. Right. But I have kind of made people know each other more, understand what their capabilities are, what their skill set is. So it was very easy for someone to refer someone else. So so I think beyond just the personal connection, mm. was able to um, was able to spur a lot more connections than would have otherwise been been possible. So for me personally, it's why I started my entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to kind of also understand how do other people think about business um, from that space. I remember I had a lot of people who had already started companies and would come and share their knowledge. I remember talking to Segeni quite a lot. Uh, Segeni was the founder of Lama Mike's mm-hmm. and used to come there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the I'm just group. moving closer because sure. the mic is a bit far. I want to make sure these people catch all the <laughs> noise. Yeah, the, the team behind you, Shahidi, was also working out of there. So they used to have a lot of insights and thoughts to share. Mm-hmm. So, so there's there a lot of uh, positive, good things going on. Um, and especially the events. They bring people who they felt would bring value or add value to the ecosystem. So they brought fireside chats as a concept. So people who've made it or people who uh, are prominent, mm-hmm. um, they would come and share local, their... Local, local. Yeah, all of this. All these are local. Although they, I remember one where they brought... Uh, Brian Chesky, mm. uh, the co-founder of Airbnb, mm. uh, he came in 2014, I believe, sorry, 2016, and, um, no, sorry, I got the dates wrong, I think it was 20, that must have been 2016, if I'm not wrong, but, but anyway, um, so wherever they could, they found uh, people, yeah, they, count, they found people, and what so, do you think, this, this is an important point, where yeah. do you think the ecosystem is right now to replace mm-hmm. what they were doing, or has that scaled into is somebody else kind of doing that right now? Because obviously the effect was 
very powerful because you guys are alumni of that whole experience. Yeah, so I think, I think since then it's, it's evolved um, in the sense that we do... So, so those days I know we had iHub and the other big one then was Nylab, although Nylab was more an incubator. So they'll bring you in, um, work with you, get your business sustainable mm -hmm. and then kind of let you find your feet. Mm -hmm. um, we also had iLab working out of Strathmore, mm -hmm. uh, a similar concept mm -hmm. where they incubate. So I don't think there's any company or organization that's taken the iHub model um, now it could be for various reasons. I think a lot of them are looking at their sustainability. Mm -hmm. So they need to be able to kind of avail desks or space at a fee right. to be able to cover their costs. Right. So, so that's kind of evolved. Um, and I think a lot of the conversation now has moved to social media platforms. Um, we still, so in terms of one-off events and um, kind of what we used to have then around fireside chats and the like, I know we now have the likes of Meta doing regular regular talks. Um, I have still does talks, but but the good thing is I think a lot of the a lot of access or a lot of the um, people who are at IHUB or a lot of the companies that are founded there are at, are right now on much more solid footing, and they're even in a position to sponsor uh, events, for example. So I think that access to information or access to community is still there. It's evolved, yes. You don't have a place where you can go and not I don't think there's any mm, that I know yeah. of. Because yeah. of the sustainability uh, concerns. the sustainability concerns. Mm. But the good thing is those who, um, those who benefited from that concept um, five, six years ago are trying to think of ways they can give back. So let's talk about this because yeah. this is important. Yeah. Uh, because it's all the ecosystem mm. evolves, mm. but you still got to be doing the things that catalyze early growth because there's mm. people who are coming back like you who are coming out of KU, coming out of all these universities and mm. local institutions. Mm. Where is their IAP today? And if it doesn't seem there's a direct answer there, right? I mean, mm. at least I haven't been able to kind of find a place where people can go congregate without having to pay a fee, mm. which to me, in my mind, gives a gap. Mm. Right, because you still need to keep that early stage catalyzation. Mm -hmm. You're saying that folks who build companies can are, are thinking about ways to kind of create similar conditions. I think, I mean, it's there are many ways of looking at it. But my my personal view is you you want you, you want to build uh, a system or or a set of um, enablers that would have what I would call entrepreneurs not just with an idea to come and thrive. Because right. I think one, one good thing that day is like, there was quite, the, the good thing about that is there's some kind of fit in the sense that you came there knowing you're coming to meet like-minded people. Mm. Now, of course, a lot of more people in the IT space, the number of students going through university studying um, anything in the IT field is much, much more. And so you want to kind of think, okay, through beyond just coming and uh, using a space. I come with something you want to try out at least. So there's a filtration process that has to happen, a selection. Which, which, which I think is good in some ways. Of course there's a cost, there's an aspect of... How do you do that actually? How do you do that in a sustainable way? But then you don't want people just to come and use the space for the sake of using right, it. Right. Um, I think that also takes us in the wrong, in direction. The wrong direction. Yeah. So the fact that you still have incubators of some sort, I think is good. Um, I think where I think access to knowledge, information, and network should still be there. That may or may not be done exclusively through events or networking opportunities. But I think those. I think the way the way to think of it maybe is those who are, I guess, 
determined and uh, inquisitive enough should be able to know where these events are happening, access opportunities, right. uh, look to get you an incubator. Because you don't want someone to come and do it just for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Um, you want someone who's coming and looking at this and saying, okay, can I sustain myself for the next, can I give it a go for the next six months? But you know, if you yeah. think about, you know, uh, the average person when they're, when they're young, mm. there are so many things that you kind of maybe assume or you don't even think you can do, right? Like. Mm. Uh, you, you, you just kind of are looking at the world and hoping something, a signal pops up, right? Mm -hmm. And if you go somewhere and you have to pay to attend things, I mean, you don't have that much uh, liquidity at that point in time. So my, my sense is true. You, you would need to actually have some selection as to find the right people who are motivated enough. But there's a very real thing about being affordability, right? To be able to actually access spaces and networks and so on and so forth. So some people, by default, because they don't know they can... I feel like some people will be left out. I feel like some, some talent, some capability, some connections will not happen just because there's not this opportunity for people to get together, right? There's two, mm -hmm. two sides of the same coin. I agree yeah, with you, yeah. but at the same time, I'm like, is that the entire story, right? Like, so, so to your point, I think access to people, networks, and opportunities there at no cost. Um, we still have a sizable number of events uh, or activities going on which you can participate in without, at no cost to you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, where I work uh, at Trigger, and one of the previous folks was running, um, uh, he was a moderator or a mentor at um, what they were calling ALC in the Lalani community. And you could go and participate. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. All you need to do is register interest and provided you have enough uh, context and knowledge, you could actually go and make something useful out of it and go and meet like-minded people. Um, if I think of the events, I, I, don't, I don't recall Meta ever charging for an event, for example. All you need to do is register enough because of capacity constraints. So if these are, and the good, thing, the good thing about that approach is they're not looking at, it's not purely tech conversations. They look at things like health, uh, digital marketing, they look at various broad sectors, spectrum of both subject spectrum. matter. Yeah. So, so that's good in the sense that even if you're thinking of a tech solution or tech-minded solution, it has to apply in a certain field. So mm -hmm. talking to the experts in those fields will give you extra context and extra knowledge. And that's something that was not previously available. Mm -hmm. Before, you just used to look at tech as its own isolated thing. Right. But one thing I've come to know with time is we can't build tech for the sake of building tech. Right. It has to solve a real need. Mm -hmm. It has to align to uh, an industry that's... Uh, it has to solve real-world problems. It yes, it has to solve real-world problems and it has to align to an industry that really needs technology to scale or be more efficient. Right. So uh, when I think of our case right now, like a trigger, tech was brought to scale a logistics operation, but the real need there was around operations, logistics, and value chain efficiency. So the fact that people are thinking, okay, let's not just bring people who know tech, but people who know specific business operations, uh, business operations who are subject matter experts in specific Precisely. fields, right. those opportunities. And I think that's where we really needed to go and say, okay, let's bring people who know these things. Mm. So to the extent that those opportunities are still there, I think people can still make use out of it. Mm. Now, I guess to your point, it's a question of if someone has an idea, or wants to try out something, why do you give them access to space or mentorship opportunities for three, six, nine months, however, however long it is that they need to kind of validate or kind of prove out their, their idea? Mm. So I guess that's where the question needs to be asked. Mm. But 
in my view, I think there's still a lot of access to information opportunity. And then when I think of things like the cost of data, which has come tremendously yeah. down, even from 2010, 2011 rates, right, right. a lot of this information can be found online. Now, granted, it's not a person-to-person -person interaction, so that's different. But I think access to information is there. It's so I think, I think the transition that needs to happen in my view is think through how do we encourage people to think through valid ideas? Mm -hmm. How do they think of it not as a short-term thing where I want to go and do it and get prize money? Because that was also the other challenge we've mm -hmm. had over the last few years. Mm -hmm. We had people who, who are specializing in attending... Pitch, 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 pitch entrepreneurs. Yeah, pitch, we used to call them pitchpreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd always think about what's the next event I can go and pitch to. And, and make money, and that sustains the company. Wow. So to, to a large extent, the one of the side effects of that approach is there was a lot of easy money. Mm. People are not thinking through sustainable long-term ideas, mm. and that's what we need to really switch to. Mm. How do we get entrepreneurs who are thinking about the opportunity? Mm. How do they think through making um, something sustainable and look at it long-term? Right. So it's not the first, because entrepreneurship and running or starting any business will always have its ups and downs inevitably. Mm. But how do we get people to the point where they're thinking of this long term mm. and they're going to give it a good shot mm. um, up to the point where it's not feasible anymore. Right. So, so I think that's where the conversation has and, to be. And let's talk a little bit about that because that's yeah. a very important thing, right? Hello, Chini Amaji family. Uh, this week's podcast is going to be split into two sessions. When Kane and myself get talking startups, we can go all day. We were hoping to go for half an hour. We ended up uh, going for an hour and change. So this is the end of part one. And part two will also be posted uh, immediately. So you can uh, have access to that right away.